people treat these figures like Alex Jones as fringe. And as I've been saying for a long time, like a lot of these people are building audiences bigger than MSNBC, CNN, maybe even mm -hmm. Fox News. And it is profitable in America mm -hmm. to tell lies. How do you fight that? Now you fight that with truth. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, what do we have today, Corey? Well, we got a pretty big episode. On today's show, Alex Jones had his day in court and it'll make your jaw drop. We'll discuss the key moments there before diving into the world of antitrust, that thing we learned about in ninth grade history class that's actually making a comeback in DC these days. Then we'll decide whether it's time to take cell phones away from kids while they're in school. And we'll bring you a few quick news updates from the past couple of days. But first things first, Conservative lawmakers around the country are coming after corporations they accuse of being too woke with a slew of legislation. Citing concerns over businesses, social and political activism, politicians have done everything from putting guardrails on employee diversity training to outright halting business with specific firms. Now companies are finding themselves caught between a rock and a hard place, balancing the competing interests of their conservative critics and progressive activists. So Ricky, uh, take us through some of the legislation that we've seen so far. How many bills have taken aim at so-called corporate wokeness? here. So just this year, we've seen 44 bills proposed in 17 states, all more red states, and they've been taking aim at different social activist stances that corporations have been taking on gun control, climate change, DEI, like diversity um, initiatives, abortion, CRT, vaccine mandates, like a whole slew of things that are contentious in our society. And the legislation, there's like a kind of whole host of it where there's some stuff where like in Florida, the Stop Woke Act, DeSantis is essentially telling companies that they can't do divisive DEI training, which is based on guilt and anguish, which I think we've talked about before on the show is not really a great standard because I could feel guilt about my immutable characteristics and that's completely subjective. Yeah. But then there's also like laws in states like West Virginia now where they're pulling away from investing like their state funds with firms that are like expressly anti um, the coal industry, which is a very important industry to them locally. And so there's kind of a whole host of of, um, shots being taken at corporate America right now, which I think kind of vary in how much I support them. But um, yeah, there's there's a big spread. Yeah, I think there's like a tug of war between these states. There's some states that are saying, look, we want to divest from these fossil fuels. And now the response is the states that are heavily dependent upon those industries mm -hmm. like West Virginia are saying, now we're going to divest from the entities that are divesting from fossil fuels. And I think the big question is, what do we think about this? Is this just how democracy and the market are supposed to work? Like, you know, you know, people make their decisions and then people vote literally and then vote with their pocketbooks. I think there's like a whole kind of scale of these bills. But for example, in West Virginia, I don't really have a problem with a state that's managing the pensions of its citizens saying we're not going to put it in firms that are targeting the industries that are keeping our our state alive like it doesn't mean that the firms don't have the right to do that but i also think the state has the right to invest its money in a way that's 
like reflective of the people within it. And, you know, you might disagree with it or you might agree with the firm and their initiative, but that doesn't change the reality in West Virginia that that's probably more reflective of the populace than investing in firms that are actively stifling their economy for better or for worse in the end. Well, West Virginia might just have to start modernizing their economy. I mean, what Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock said is, we focus on sustainability, not because we're environmentalists, but because we are capitalists and fiduciaries to our clients. What they're basically saying is we're not doing this because because we're big time liberal environmentalists. We're doing this because if we don't do something to mitigate the effects of climate change, capitalism isn't gonna matter. We're not gonna have customers alive to be able to profit from. And, well, and what Fink can believe that, but West Virginia can also believe that we don't wanna put their pensions there. I mean, Getting upset with BlackRock divesting in coal when there are better energy options available is like getting mad at Target for not selling VHS tapes anymore. I mean, things go obsolete. And, you know, coal is just one of those things that's growing more and more obsolete in West Virginia. I understand that their economy is dependent on it, but that's just like that just happens with certain industries. And you have to figure out a way to adapt or you're just not going to survive in these in this economy. Well, I think the intellectual underpinning of all this on the right in particular is this book called Woke Incorporated by this guy named Vivek Ramaswamy. And let's listen to him a little bit. He went on, on Tucker Carlson recently and l talked a little bit about just the way he sees this and talks about Fink in particular. What they do is they cause companies to bend the knee to woke orthodoxy because BlackRock says that we won't invest in your company unless you abide by these progressive standards or we'll dock the pay of a CEO or fire a CEO who refuses to bend the knee to woke orthodoxy. But here's the rub, Tucker. It is not their money. That $10 trillion doesn't belong to BlackRock. Say what you will about George Soros. At least it's his money. In yes. this case, it is money that belongs to you, to everyday Americans in this country whose blood would boil if they actually knew the way their own money was being used. I think what he's saying is, all right, the BlackRock is not just an investment vehicle, but they are an investment vehicle that receives money from pension funds, I think is what he's saying. Uh, I'm a little skeptical because I think like if you look at what are the biggest pension funds in the country, they're largely actually coming from blue states. So if it becomes like the red state pension funds go to, the, there are now actually explicit you know, non quote woke, which we'll get into what that term is is being used to mean here. There are now non woke ETFs and investment funds. You know, pension yeah, funds. He started to, one, so yeah. he's, I mean, he's not stifling BlackRock, but he's calling attention to an issue that he has with it, and he actually created an alternative, which I give him credit for. Yeah, I'm not saying he can't do it. What I'm saying is, he's saying people will be outraged. I'm saying, well, actually, a lot of people will be excited by the fact that yeah, Fink think is what Fink is doing. I think he's mischaracterizing where the majority of Americans are on climate change. Well, it's not just climate change, though. Like BlackRock has a huge slew of initiatives. And I think also it's hard to even conceptualize the scale of how much influence they have. They they control $10 trillion worth of assets. And that's basically half of the U.S. GDP. Of course, there's international places where some of that wealth is held. But that's a huge amount of influence. And I would argue that most people don't know who Larry Fink is. Right. And it's kind of crazy to imagine that he he can go into virtually every major company and say, I'm a major shareholder. And if you don't do this, then like you're you're in hot water, which is which, you know, it's it's a concerning amount of power that people just aren't even aware of. So I give him credit for actually just saying like here here is something that you probably don't know about. Well, I think it's important to address some of the other things you're talking about, Ricky, as far as like things going beyond just the climate change initiatives. One thing is I think it's Amazon, Microsoft, Disney, JP Morgan, all of these companies have announced initiatives to plan 
travel expenses for employees seeking abortion. Many people can look at abortion as healthcare and see what these companies are doing is just providing their employees with healthcare. So I think it really comes down to how you view these actions. Some of these employees may be very okay with these actions. The employees who aren't, I mean, they're, they're more than welcome to just get a job somewhere else. I mean, it's a free market. My concern is less about the individual companies and more about one or several major firms that have outsized influence over a slew of major companies because you see them all make like the same moves at the same time basically across the board like whether it's it's pride month or activism for certain causes and i'm it's interesting to me that there's blackrock which holds major shares of these companies and you know they're they are explicitly endorsing certain policies they also won't invest unless you have like like certain quotas of like X percentage of women on your board or this or that and things that people might take issue with just politically like a lot of people have issues with with reducing people to their immutable characteristics or a lot of people have different opinions on abortion or a lot of people have different opinions on a variety of different legislation and so for me it's less about the individual companies but more about what BlackRock on their own company's website says they want to continue to drive and contribute to public policy and legislative outcomes and the legislative outcomes is where to me, I find this a little spooky because democracy is supposed to determine legislative outcomes, not one outsized guy who nobody even knows who he is. And it just feels to me like it is in some ways subverting that process. Yeah, but I think I would be sympathetic to people like Vivek and, and you know, Tarko Carlson if they weren't part of a political movement that has created this consolidation in the first place. Like if you think about which supporty, which party in political ideology supports campaign finance limits, it's not the conservatives traditionally. Um, you know, which justices are the ones who, uh, you know, wrote the uh, Citizens United opinion? It's conservative justices. If you look at, you know, the history of donations from political action committees to politicians, when, you know, there's a funny quote we were looking at earlier, Mitch McConnell, uh, when he's talking about this so-called woke phenomenon, said, my warning, if you will, to corporate America is to stay out of politics. It's not what you're designed for. And don't be intimidated by the left into taking up causes that put you right in the middle of one of America's greatest political debates. If I were running a major corporation, I'd stay out of politics. I'm, I'm not talking about political contributions. So yeah, and but if, we're not even talking about political contributions with BlackRock. We're talking about like, yeah, like saying, corporate power. I'm saying that's part of corporate power. And if you look at this in this country right now, the, the numbers here are staggering. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars being spent on political lobbying, $3.73 billion on lobbying in 2021. And when you see people like Vivek talk or Tucker Carlson talk about corporate power, noticeably absent or tucked into their book, which I'll get to, is a, an aside about this. It's like a sideshow to be like, oh, yeah, all this actual money being spent to influence politicians through their power. That's either like a very small part of the story or non-existent. In the case of Tucker, he's totally complicit in this world, as is Mitch McConnell of this world where corporations are as powerful as they are. But there's like this book, I swear, like there are certain parts of this book where I'm like, yes, you're calling out bullshit that these companies are doing. You're, you're calling out contradictions. But the sheer amount of contradictions that show up in this book that seem to reflect his ideology are staggering. So this is page 28. He's saying, look, there are some tough cases like tobacco, because he's basically saying companies should only care about the shareholders. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Um, never mind that there are things called B Corps, where you're explicitly legally allowed to take into account social welfare, mm -hmm. uh, which 
we could have a whole debate about regular corporations could do that or not. He says, all right, tobacco, that's a tough case. But then he says, but in actuality, this kind of case rarely arises in the real world. Most corporate actions that are known to harm people are either illegal or likely to hurt the company's reputation. So I'm like, okay, he's saying like, uh, you know, tobacco, that's a, that's a rare case, almost never happens. Two pages later, he says, under the guise of doing good, the corporate con artists hide all the bad things that they do every day. So now he's saying they do bad things every day. <laughs> this is just two pages later. Coca-Cola fuels an epidemic of diabetes and obesity among black Americans through the products it sells. The hard business decision for the company to, bait is, to, to debate is whether to change the ingredients of the bottle of Coke. So on one page, he's saying, all right, tobacco, that's super rare. Then he says, these corporate, corporate con artists are doing bad things every day. How is that possible? Like, this is two pages later. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not fully married to like his ideology here at all. And I'm also not like, like, I don't think that being concerned about outsized power just on the basis, not not on the basis of Larry Fink's personal politics, but on the basis that you could plug f virtually any ideology into that place. And that would be concerning and alienating to a lot of people. Like, you know, there's the Soros boogeyman and Koch brother boogeyman that I feel like everyone falls on one side or another with. And I just I think that you can be concerned about outsized power of certain corporations and also be concerned about political donations. And like those aren't mutually exclusive. Like they can they can actually be part of the conversation. I too. agree with you if it wasn't for the fact that people like Vivek are actually arguing that these corporations must be legally required to only focus on their shareholders when he's also just positing a blatant contradiction here saying, well, these things, these guys are doing bad things. But what he's saying is, well, as long as what the shareholders want is more profit, then the company CEO should be beholden only to making more money, which no company ever does that. Like, you know, Chick-fil-A, you know, Tucker Carlson was super fine with Chick-fil-A, you know, their foundation donated to for years to anti-LGBTQ causes, yeah. including a group called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, an organization that required employees to refrain from homosexual acts. Their CEO, this is the CEO of Chick-fil-A, said the U.S. was, quote, inviting God's judgment on our nation when we shake our fists at him and we say we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. Now, to me, I don't agree with the Chick-fil-A CEO. I don't think that CEO should be legally prohibited from doing any of that. That's the difference between me and Vivek is Vivek is like, look, Larry Fink should be legally prohibited. That's what he's arguing for in the policy. He should be legally prohibited from doing what he's doing on climate change. And I'm look, this guy, like, let the pension funds walk. Like, I don't think we should reform our laws and, and DeSantis is wrong, Vivek's wrong, Tucker Carlson is wrong. I don't want to, and I don't want to trust anybody to tell these corporations what to do. I have personal feelings about what they should be doing. And I feel yeah. differently about the climate stuff than some of the, the things that they might do on other social issues. Yeah, know? I don't think we have any distance between us on that issue. Like there are people like myself included who are sympathetic to the concerns that, that Vivek is bringing up here, but also has different legislative or solutions that I right. think I'm in favor of. All right, so let's move on. We talk a lot about wokeness, but how about the opposite end of the spectrum? Alex Jones, his defamation trial kicked off last week, leading to a series of bombshell revelations, including how much his company actually racked in and potential perjury. So let's look at some of the key moments from the trial. Here's Jones under cross-examination. Did you know that 12 days ago, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years. I See, I told you the truth. This is your Perry Mason moment. I gave them my phone and then- Mr. Jones, you need to answer the question. No, I, Do you I, know I, this happened? 
No, no. I didn't know this happened. Because but... you're not allowed food or gum of any kind in the courtroom. <clears throat> I, I, I had my tooth pulled uh, a week and a half ago. Would you like me to show you? No, I yeah, just here? want you to answer my question. No, I, I, I was massaging the whole of my mouth with my tongue. Now here's the judge addressing Jones directly in court. It seems absurd to instruct you again that you must tell the truth while you testify. Yet here I am. You must tell the truth while you testify. This is not your show. Wow. So, yeah, we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the uh, Glenn Greenwald interview he had with Alex Jones. I think the, the biggest question here, Ravi, is that, at, you know, it, it, it seems like Alex Jones really hasn't learned his lesson, which is what the Greenwald interview was implying. Yeah, I think there are a couple layers of this. There's like obviously the theatrics and Ricky, as you were saying off air, like everybody's tone seems to be off during this it trial. It just like feels like <laughs> a middle school fight in a way. Every, like all three of them just feel like a little off in the way that they're- They seem like yeah. they're actors. Yeah, like it doesn't feel Like very bad actors real. pretending to be themselves. Uh, but that's that's all aside. I mean, this is a serious situation involving a lot of serious issues. Absolutely. Have, you know, there are dead children involved and, and the story that was being told about them. And then you also have the question, which I think yesterday, there were a couple powerful moments. It was a mom who gave powerful testimony, but there were also, as part of this leaked record, which was, you know, the nightmare of any defense attorney is that they inadvertently hand over the wrong documents and this seems really sloppy and could have Super huge implications sloppy. for many people moving forward uh among the interesting revelations here was the fact that on one day alex jones's company earned eight hundred thousand dollars in selling products wow. and that obviously doesn't necessarily mean it's representative of every day but i think to me this was the big headline which is it is profitable in america mm -hmm. to tell lies and as a company that's focused on fighting, you know, lies and distortions in the media, mm -hmm. this to me was the big headline. Is there, I'm just curious, like a reason why that day was particularly, is that, that's not connected to his reporting on Sandy Hook, is it? I don't think yet. I think part of what's going on is like the public doesn't have access to all these texts and the Jones's attorneys clearly weren't ready for it. So I'm imagining they are using this particular data point to challenge Jones's portrayal of his own finances. Because yeah. I mm -hmm. think part of what we're doing, it's about the judgment, the financial yeah. judgment. I think in the end, we'll find out what this is. I think what what we will find out is that not every day was $800,000, but also that Jones's claims that he's bankrupt. He's filed for legal bankruptcy. I think what we're gonna likely find out is that somewhere between Jones being broke and him making $800,000 a year is here's a guy who's made 100 plus million dollars a year potentially uh, and has lots of money. I'm sure there's gonna be allegations that he's moved it around to, yeah. in order to declare bankruptcy, et cetera. That, but, but I think the big headline is this is profitable business. Like being yeah. incendiary, telling lies, distortions, yeah. capitalizing on tragedy, is profitable in America. Today. I mean, and the capitalizing yeah. on tragedy part is the one I want to touch on real quick because I mean, this whole case deals with defamation in regards to him saying Sandy Hook was some type of false flag event or it was a hoax or something like that. And his whole thing was, I really believe that, and that's why I was saying that. And now he's admitting that that, that Sandy Hook was 100% real. But this isn't just something he did just with Sandy Hook. Uh, he acknowledged during this trial of a history of raising conspiracy claims about other mass tragedies from Oklahoma City bombing to the Boston Marathon uh, bombing to the mass shootings in Las Vegas and Parkland. So this is something he does. Whenever an event like this happens, it's inconvenient for whatever his narrative is. He says, oh, it didn't really happen. The government just staged that because they want to take your guns away. By the way, 
absolutely no guns have been taken away since Sandy Hook or since <laughs> yeah. any of this. So if, yeah. if the government is doing this, this to take guns they're away, they're, they're really bad yeah. at, at their at their false yeah. flag staging here. And so this is just what he does. And I, I'm curious, do you all think there will be bigger implications on misinformation pundits like this going forward or will they just police their language a little bit more? Ricky, you and I were talking about this uh, offline. It's like, I, I'm careful to not advocate for too many legal repercussions for yeah. people telling lies, unless those lies are the equivalent of the uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater where you are creating imminent harm to somebody in a predictable way, whether it's inciting people directly to commit violence against somebody or doing something on the equivalent of that. And so in this case, obviously, he did himself no favors by not cooperating at the first phase of trial. So we never even got that question answered about whether yeah. Jones himself crossed that line here. And as you could see now, he has a talent for obstructing justice. So we'll never know really what the legal standard should have been or how it would have been applied to his facts in the first phase. What we might find out, Ricky, though, through these text messages is what his state of mind was throughout the course of all of this and whether he was in fact lying. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the question in the defamation sense. But I mean, I think basically everyone I know in, in polite society can agree that what you pointed out is reprehensible. The question just then becomes like that is speech unless yeah. he's very deliberately defaming people. And that's, you know, by obstructing justice, he never even got to have a ruling on whether or not that was protected by the First Amendment. But yeah. it's one of those tough cases where as like basically a free speech absolutist, I which I still am regardless in this case as well, I think like it's it's one of those times where you really have to like hold yourself back in your personal moral and ethical um, positions just when it comes to the court of law, not when it comes to the court of public opinion. So right. I think that's like, that's the line. I think for companies like us though, I think the, the challenge then becomes, th this was only made possible because of the legal recourse, right? Yeah. Which once again, I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not sure, I'm actually, I'm pretty sure not everybody who tells lies shouldn't be dragged in front of a jury. But we don't have a place in society to sort through all this. If this, yeah. if people are creating huge audiences based on lies, how do you fight that? Now you fight that with truth, yeah. right? And yeah. so, but I think what media companies struggle with right now is that, you know, people treat these figures like Alex Jones as fringe. And as I've been saying for a long time, like a lot of these people are building audiences bigger than MSNBC, CNN, maybe even mm -hmm. Fox News. And at a certain point, like companies like us need to be putting their clips up more you know, frequently and saying, look, this is what Alex Jones suggested. I don't love to talk about this, but he has a huge audience and we're providing a service by going line by line saying yeah. like, actually, this is incorrect. Yeah. You know, because if the, your relative comes and asks you about it, you'll have the facts for it. That's one of the unfortunate side effects of like banning people off of platforms and YouTube and stuff is that their, their, their conversation doesn't actually get into circulation with the rest of the world. And so you have yeah. these like little bubbles where that is reality. And then we don't even really know what's going on because it's like inaccessible on some weird right. rumble thing or whatever. It gets tough though. Cause you think about like the, the pizzeria gate thing. Because if I'm the one in that pizzeria and like Google, YouTube is allowing a video saying that I'm a pedophile, but I'm not, I'm like, shit, like, like, what, do like you do? what am I going to yeah. do? I don't have yeah. a YouTube channel. I don't know what to, you know, of, a, of similar size. So that's where I think it gets thorny. That's where I think it starts to meet societal decency and safety issues where I'm like, hmm.
And there are lies against lying about certain individuals, you know, libel and slander lies. But this is just it's a really complicated thing because it does deal with free speech. And how do you safeguard free speech while also protecting people from very dangerous misinformation? It's a really slippery slope that us in the media are going to have to continue to try to mitigate. Uh, but let's move on to our next story. Monopoly is more than rich Uncle Pennybags tipping his top hat at you when you were a kid. Monopoly is actually in the legal sense making a comeback in our daily lexicon. That's because there's been more political will, some of it even bipartisan, to rein in giant companies today than at any time in modern memory. So we're going to go through some of the major developments in that world of law, not because this kind of law makes for captivating headlines, but because those competitive guardrails are fundamental to our society. But before we dive into the specific lawsuits against companies like Meta, Penguin Random House, and a barrage of others, Ravi, can you give us a quick little refresher in the history of antitrust law in America? Right. So this is pretty straightforward. You know, what is antitrust if you hear this term? The term, are, it really means regulations to encourage competition by limiting the market power of certain powerful corporations. And our country's history in this area is pretty vast. If you go back to this sort of first era of antitrust in this country, it was like 1890 to 1920. This is when our country passed certain uh, important laws like the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Clayton Act, when they broke up Standard Oil. And that was sort of the first phase, the populist phase of antitrust, uh, where they basically set up the legal framework that we've been dealing with ever since. There was a brief pause in all of this during the Great Depression and during World War II, when I think essentially the country was like, look, like we, doesn't matter whether there's consolidation or not. We're at war. We're we're dealing with a massive, massive, uh, you know, generational depression, and there's a whole bunch of history and scholarship that debates what that era meant in terms of the, like, the intellectual strength of of, of going after corporations. Like, I think certain people are skeptical of antitrust law. Say, well, if you're going to pause it during these major crises. Maybe we shouldn't be breaking up companies because maybe like large companies actually serve a purpose. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Post World War II, we had aggressive enforcement. So this is you know there was a cer certain kind of com you know combination of like rhetoric to say like all right we fought fascism right and actually competition is an antidote to fascism. Saying like look smaller corporations are actually the opposite of fascism and even like libertarian thinkers like Hayek wrote about you know, saying like we can't have, quote, dogmatic laissez-faire attitudes seem to flirt with at least some regulation in this area. Mm -hmm. But then that played out. And then you had the rise in the late 70s of what they call the Chicago School, which was married to the sort of Reaganite revolution where, you know, judges were installed, people were installed at the Department of Justice, uh, senators, Congress people, et cetera. There was, a, there was a new intellectual movement to weaken antitrust enforcement and essentially say it used to be that economic and non-economic factors could come into play when it comes to antitrust. What do I mean by this? Precisely what we talked about in the first segment of the show, which mm -hmm. is, you know, what we were talking about was consolidation of economic power, but also social power to say, yeah. all right, we can use our power to influence things beyond dollars and cents. We can also punish our employees in the labor market as well, and sort of instill a certain kind of culture through our consolidation, right? The That sort of late 70s era to basically 2010s uh, era antitrust policy was basically saying you can only take into account how consolidation affects prices. And basically that meant there was not a lot of enforcement during that period. Everything changed around the time where basically the Warren movement was ascendant in the Democratic Party and then mm -hmm. Trump was ascendant in the Republican Party, where essentially you replaced the sort of Clinton-Bush era kind of neoliberals, as people would say, with these more populist 
break up the big corporation types. And that's where we are today, which is you still have all these conservative judges who are basically, you know, they still apply that what they call a consumer welfare standard. But you have both some Republicans like Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Roger Wicker, uh, who are very sympathetic to people like Lena Khan, the current FTC chair, who's very aggressive on antitrust enforcement. And then you have Democrats like Warren, who are too, and they're coming together. And that's why you see four or five major cases in the headlines this week on antitrust. And it sounds like a lot of it is centering on the tech industry, which I know back in the 90s, there was a big antitrust dust up with Microsoft. And now this week, we're seeing one with Meta, formerly known as Facebook. So what exactly is the FTC trying to block Meta from doing? Yeah. And to put it in context, you know, we have the Meta case, we have a publishing case where we're going to talk about. You have Rumble mm-hmm. versus Google, United Healthcare versus Change. We have Live versus PGA, which was a case that was just dropped this week. You know, we had previously talked about uh, on this show that entire dust up. So you're now starting to see disputes playing out through the antitrust law. And I would say the next year is crucial for this law. Microsoft is a really interesting one. And I think potentially one of the most important cases, sorry, not Microsoft, Meta. Meta. And, you know, essentially what's going on here is the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which is one of two major entities responsible for antitrust at the federal level. There's also the Department of Justice. The FTC is chaired by this woman named Lena Khan, who's an extremely young and I would say aggressive on antitrust person. And that's why she was picked. And when she was picked, she actually got widespread support. She got a ton of Republican votes, including Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. Josh Hawley had glowing things to say about her, Mm -hmm. in part because of what I talked about before, the changing politics of this. So she's come in now, and she's basically the new sheriff in town, and she filed an injunction last Wednesday to block Meta from buying a virtual reality company called Within. This is a $400 million acquisition. The real power of Within is this app called Supernatural, Mm -hmm. which is a chart-topping VR exercise game. Notably, Meta has a game called Beat Saber, which seems like it's kind of a competitor. There's a lot of debate about how much of a competitor it really is. But what makes this really notable is the fact that Khan, Lena Khan, the head of the FTC, is not saying that by purchasing this company, Facebook slash Meta is becoming a monopoly in this Mm -hmm. area, but that they could become a monopoly, like that down the line, the trends could lead to consolidation. And they analogize this to when Facebook bought Instagram and eventually WhatsApp Mm -hmm. and kind of, some would argue, consolidated social media. To me, that seems very like unprecedented and potentially concerning the idea that are like the FTC would be predicting future markets and not acting on the basis of what actually happens. Like to me, I can see a world in which this means that innovation is stifled and people are kind of avoiding new, new acquisitions and mergers. And, you know, this is a burgeoning industry that, you know, unfortunately it has to be Zuckerberg, but Meta is probably going to make huge leaps and bounds in terms of innovation. And I don't know, I just the tone of this is kind of strange to me, especially because she overruled people within the FTC who were advising her not to do this because it's just so unprecedented and probably doesn't have legs. I think there are a couple ways to interpret what she's doing. One is that she thinks that this is a legal area that she can test alongside a changing political environment and that maybe she's making the calculation that because the ascendant forces in both political parties, even though the the courts and the Department of Justice aren't there today, Mm -hmm. maybe everybody will read the political tea leaves. And she's betting that our courts and justice system are politicized 
she may be right. That, That's not really a great um, bet, though. No, I'm not saying cynical. I agree with her. I, I'm it's with pretty you. Pretty cynical. That this is, <laughs> I agree with you. This is a problem. That's that's bet number one. That this is an ideological bet. Bet number two is that this is a celebrity bet. That this is a rising star who is going to leave eventually. She's going to write books. She's going to go on the circuits, mm-hmm, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And she wants to say, "Hey, I did everything I could, but they stopped me." Yeah, uh, you know. I just don't know if Within is big enough and significant enough to be compared to the Instagram deal that uh, Facebook engaged in back in 2012. However, I can see why Meta is trying to do that. If you look at, so so at, at the heart of this is like the supernatural VR that Within has and then Meta has its own comparable game called Beat Saber. Just look at the difference between them. I know our, our podcast audience can't see it, but I'll try to describe it to you. If you look at Supernatural, this is Supernatural right here. It's This is pretty cool looking. I mean, it's like outdoors. The graphics are very high. You know, they're very up there as far as quality. It kind of reminds like a Marvel movie or something. And then when you look at the graphics of Meta's Beat Saber, it's like, what is this, Tron? Like, mm-hmm. it's just like, it's inside some room. It's just blue and red. It's, it's just not. But that's what Lena Khan would say is that they have a shittier version, just like Facebook just had like, a shittier uh, version of Instagram. Of Instagram yeah. And they're buying the better version as opposed to innovating their way to that. But even if you buy that, if people remember the Instagram, people said that Facebook overpaid for Instagram. Yeah, at the yeah. time. People thought that value. Google overpaid for YouTube. So I think this is the market at some point has to learn. And so if you're the next uh, Misery or whatever, you need to say, all right, like a lot of companies now do, like, hey, I'm not going to take a, a small acquisition target. And yeah. I don't love Zuckerberg, but he also had multiple opportunities to sell out uh, in his early days of yeah. Facebook and didn't. You know, and I think that's part of what it means to be a good entrepreneur is like, how do you know when to sell and when, when do you know when to stay? Yeah, and I think the conversation around antitrust also kind of makes me wary of false bipartisanship where, yes, you know, it feels like, reasons, yeah. yeah, it feels like, oh, everyone's in agreement and everyone likes this new FTC woman. But like we have fundamentally different reasons why like the right and the left are coming for these big tech companies. Yeah. And so I think there can be an illusion that everyone's kind of on the same page. But in reality, the root of that support is very divided and actually is I don't I don't know. I don't like the idea of these two engines coming together to just sort it, of break down the free market. If it gets it's the a little same weird result. to me. But what uh, Ricky, tell me a little bit about what's going on with Penguin Random House. Uh they're they're also at the heart of an antitrust situation here as well. Yeah. So they're attempting to buy Simon and Schuster for two point two billion dollars. They're two of the big five in um, American publishing. So essentially if you want to write a book, those are kind of the pinnacle and they bet they bid against each other if you like when you're in the process which i've done myself you speak to editors at different publishing houses and then you get the numbers from them and they all kind of go into wars and drop out but the biden administration is suing and it's going up to a u.s district court um the trial began on monday it's expected to last two to three weeks and their argument the doj's argument is that this will have less competition between publishers that authors will be paid less because theoretically they could collaborate in bidding wars to make sure that they're not outbidding each other and a quote from their argument is that it's likely to diminish overall output creativity and diversity among books published. But then you also have the other side of the coin here, which is that Simon & Schuster's parent company was already going to divest from them. So regardless, they need a buyer. Mm -hmm. Penguin was willing and wanted to. And now why would any of the other big five want to acquire them? And does that mean that private equity is going to take them over and potentially, you know, we've gone through our qualms with private equity, Mm -hmm. like radically alter the, the publishing space in the process. And so I think that this is definitely 
not a clear case where I feel that antitrust should be coming in just because like if they're going to stay separate too, that even like diminishes the very fundamental argument in my position. Yeah, I think like this is a better case for the the Justice Department than obviously the Facebook uh, Meta VR case in mm-hmm. part because the consolidation is happening before our eyes and depending on how you look, like obviously this is a weird case where it's not necessarily the customers that are at issue right away, but the writers yeah. uh, and the writers as employers it, it's a little bit like the UFC case. There's a, a case uh, going on right now that's advancing where basically mm-hmm. the UFC fighters uh, are, or potential UFC fighters are claiming that the UFC is operating in a similar way by yeah. consolidating the industry, et cetera, and that other, you know, like that you basically have to take whatever they give you. And that's what I think writers are worried about is that down the line, or even today, I think this gets them to something like 40% of best selling books mm-hmm. plus. If after this merger, that you start to get into the territory where writers will just have to take whatever they're given by one entity that controls so much of the market. And this to me is a better question. This is not theoretical. This is not 20 years down the line. It's kind of today. And it's the kind of thing, you know, books, which is where ideas come from. We were just talking about Woke mm-hmm. Incorporated. You know, even Josh Hawley himself like complained about publishers shutting down his book. This is another area like Meta where I think you're going to see some bipartisan uh, collaboration on this, and you know, I, I this is this is the better test in my opinion. Yeah, it's but it's just my problem with the Justice Department is it just seems like they kind of they're kind of pick and choose which one of these types of mergers they want to prevent, and then the government has been relatively silent with JetBlue successfully merging with Spirit Airlines, which I feel like the the merger of two major airlines. Is, is way bigger than, you know, the impact that consumers will have from the merging of two book publishers. So it's kind of weird that there just seems to be this selective nature about the way they're going about these antitrust laws. Yeah, one nuance here is that they're going after a monopsony, which is a new word to me and not a monopoly. But essentially, the nuance here is that, as you're saying in like the JetBlue case, um, that's based on the fact that they're the only like seller of a good virtually if you want to fly somewhere mm-hmm. versus in this case, they're the only purchaser, which is what a monopsony is or virtually one of few. And so it's like a slightly different case that does kind of fundamentally challenge the this consumer harm threshold that we've traditionally had in antitrust. But I definitely agree that this is a a clearer or a better uh, case in in terms of the DOJ. But I would also say there are some legitimate arguments to be made that like Simon & Schuster's basically in peril if they can't go through with this, that Penguin's going to have to pay them a huge fine as well if they don't go through with the deal. Um, And then also there's issues, like huge issues with supply chains right now um, in publishing. It's it's like a disaster. They're back ordered and, you know, getting books to people is a huge thing. Yeah. And all the manufacturing and printing and everything, like every every level of that. And so right now, Penguin is saying Simon & Schuster authors would benefit enormously from having access to those supply chains that we do have access to. So I think, I don't know, I I would say that the fact that Simon & Schuster is going to potentially artificially go under at the hands of a government is a little But I think these are always the arguments that they make. They always say, hey, consolidation makes things more efficient. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm hard pressed to think that there's going to be no buyer to Simon Schuster. And yeah, maybe it's private equity, but we as a society have- Yeah, it can't be one of the big five at this point though, because the same thing's going to happen to them. Yeah, maybe though, because but this is the biggest 
this is the biggest entity buying than one of the next biggest entities. I think if the smaller entity were financed to buy them, I think it would withstand pressure better just because the resulting entity would have less percentage overall, right? No no one power would get over 40% or something. Yeah, but then you risk a $200 million fine. No, I'm saying like they would be less at risk. Like everybody's yeah. at risk of that. But I think like that's part of what it's like. I think the clarity for people, I think part of what Lena Khan might be doing here, not just in this case, but with face with the meta case is it's kind of what they say is like a brushback pitch in baseball. It's like saying, look, I'm going to go after a bunch of things because it'll have a chilling effect on these types of mergers moving forward. Um, one thing I did want to say is you can't just say, what does this look like with Lena Khan in charge if you like Lena Khan? You need to say, well, what about the next administration? What about, you know, like, what about a political party you don't agree with? Like, do you want to put this kind of power kind of arbitrary the way it's being applied right now in the hands of a bureaucrat appointed by somebody you disagree with politically. And that's the bigger question here and what I'm wondering. And I know there's some other uh, antitrust situations going on out there and we'll probably get to them at some point. But let's move on to our another, another story here. There's no denying that the pandemic caused a massive setback in our kids' learning and academic progress. But now that they're back in school, some educators are sounding the alarm on a different threat facing their development, cell phones. We know cell phones can be a big distraction, but here at Herndon High School, school officials say it's become such a big hindrance that they've decided to ban cell phone use in class. Studies show that kids are spending more time online and on their phones than ever before, especially while in school. Ravi, I'm curious, you were a principal of a charter school. What was your policy when it came to cell phones in the classroom? So we used to have kids check their cell phones in various places. It's, you know, depending on the school, sometimes they check it at the front and lockers. Sometimes there were uh, bins in the back of the classrooms. And I thought that was by and large a good policy. I think there was this piece uh, in Education Next uh, this past week by this guy named Doug Lamov, which is I think the best distillation of my philosophy that I've ever seen on this and the philosophy that I think most schools should apply. And this guy, Doug Lamov, he's, he's a good friend of mine. He was a school principal up in Boston and then became a superintendent of a charter school network in New York. And then he wrote a couple of like really influential books, one called Teach Like a Champion, another called Practice Perfect. And, you know, he's like a pretty amazing educator who also coaches like U.S. soccer and Champions League teams on how to like build great like practices for sports. And so he's somebody I really respect. And I would say I largely share his view, which is laid out in this piece, essentially saying, look, before the pandemic, there was a good reason, which was I was running schools up until 2016. There was a good reason to have kids put their cell phones away. But it's even more important now because you had the pandemic alongside what he calls an internet epidemic. Uh, and essentially, in March 2020, he says, everything that competed with smartphones disappeared at a time when even before the pandemic, kids were, and, and Ricky, you and a lot of others have cataloged this in great detail, Jonathan Haidt in particular, that massive increases in kids using cell phones, massive correlation, if not causation, with huge issues with depression and lack of ability to focus, you know, kids reading less, consuming entertainment more, socializing less, going outside less, playing sports less. And that all of this is coming together was exacerbated by the pandemic. And it is a explosive problem playing out in our schools. And he argues quite persuasively, I would think that one critical step to helping address this is to limit the use if not ban it in certain places in schools. Yeah, I have no argument with that whatsoever. I think especially given that 
kids had two very fundamental or at least one very fundamental year where they were living at home where they were going to school through devices and you know the neuroplasticity of that time in your life like that i think that literally has rewired kids brains to just be even more addicted to screens even more um like just glued to them all the time and as you alluded to the the rates of depression suicide self-harm it's just staggering and it's like completely in line if you line up like screen time and and just over the past couple years you can see that there's an even larger uptick and so this is one setting where that can be controlled you can't control what kids do when they go home and they're probably going to go be on their screens even more and so i just think you know school is the time to actually engage in in in-person socialization skills which have been completely like destroyed by the pandemic, destroyed by social media. I mean, I I have no arguments with this. I think this is a good policy. Well, I mean, I totally agree that kids shouldn't be hopping on their phones while in class, but banning them outright from the classroom, I don't 100% agree with because family emergencies, uh, and obviously, unfortunately, we have such a high occurrence of school shootings in America these days. Uh, these Having these phones will make it easier for them to be able to call 911 to get in contact with people. And I know people say, well, the, the teacher can just do that. Well, not the teacher's dead. And so, a little dark there. But I'm just saying, like, I think that it's important that kids have access to their phones because of those situations. I also think that by taking the phones physically away from them, it's not really giving them a chance to learn discipline and self-control because then it's saying the only way you can learn self-control and discipline is by having a physical barrier. Whereas what if we just enforce the rules? What if like a kid is reaching for their phone? You say, no, don't do that. You know, write that kid up, suspend that kid, do what you have to do. But like teach them physical self-control by saying, I know this phone is in your pocket. I know you have access to it, but you're not allowed to touch it right now. Corey, do you know that you're talking to Robbie who literally locks his phone in phone jail (laughs) for hours at a time, which I've criticized him for the same thing no i'm i'm kind of with you on that i've I've been saying like you you know if you can't not certain personalities may not be able to deal with that you know schools are all about picking and choosing which areas you give students the ability to make those choices so we don't put mcdonald's in schools for for the for the reasons of self-control it's like Mm -hmm. yeah a kid could learn not to eat it but at a certain point the kids are young they're still building their sense of Mm self-discipline and a school should create be an environment where we create an environment that we make kids as likely to succeed as much as possible. And I think like sometimes you can, you know, make small choices. In this case, I think uh, the cell phone stuff is a small choice to make everybody's experience better writ large. And I think what Lamov advocates for here, I think is a sensible policy, which I think would solve some of the things that you're getting at, Mm -hmm. Corey. Although I do think people exaggerate how often a kid having their cell phones is going to make a difference. It didn't even make a difference in Uvalde. The kid called, but it didn't mm-hmm. stop anything. That wasn't really the kid's uh, fault. That was the cop's fault. Yeah, but, but I'm I saying, saying like these saying. things happen. Yeah, and we all went to school back in the day where there was like that random landline yeah. that was in the school. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But put that all aside. What he's advocating is, hey, put have the kid put their cell phone in their bag. It has to be off, okay. which by the way, you could turn it on then yeah, in yeah, case yeah. of an emergency. No. Yeah. And if they take it out, then they're reprimanded. I would be okay with that in yeah. a school building where the administrators actually are committed to implementing that policy. Because mm-hmm. I think what happens is these these administrators are afraid of the parents. Mm-hmm. So then they're like, all right, the parent comes up and then accuses the administrator of not wanting their kid to be safe. Be like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, Auntie yada yada is in the hospital and like you, whatever. And like they, they come in, they yell, they create a scene and then administrators start to back down little by little. And then all of a sudden you've got a school situation where 
you know, 15 kids have their cell phones out in the middle of a math lesson. Never mind the arguments that people are making about, well, they need to look up things and all that bullshit. Yeah, I don't agree with that at all. They're task switching, adults are task switching, everybody's task switching, and the data, he cites the data in this piece about how much people are task switching and how detrimental it is to learning. That's just too convenient too. They're like, oh, we're looking something up. No, you're on TikTok. You're not looking up Right. Yeah, and I'm the only person here, I imagine, who had a a smartphone in middle school. Right. But, um, Yeah. yeah, and I I have I to say that I had like a my school was like a you can't pull it out like mm-hmm. it can be in your bag but you can't have it out thing but then like in every like crevice and corner and hallway there was someone on their phone or like in the bathroom stall for like an hour because they're on their phone you know like yeah, I yeah. I actually think the the confiscation thing at least like when you walk into a classroom or something I'm th- I'm more for that it's certainly an addiction for sure yeah well, when I think like this this was like when I went to law school it was two thousand five. And it was just as social media was really starting to take hold and where and where we didn't have norms and conversations around what was good and bad. And mm-hmm. so one thing we would do a lot is AOL Instant Messenger and Google Chat in the law school lectures. And I could tell you right now, it was destructive yeah. of all of our learning. Like yeah. We were just chatting all the time. And at a certain point, year, a couple of years later, professors started to say outright, you can't have your laptop out in class unless you have a physical disability or some other really good reason why you need to take notes on a laptop. And from what I understand, those classes were infinitely better. Yeah, Mm. yeah, totally, yeah. All right, well, we're gonna close our show today with a couple of quick updates, starting with the NFL punishing an owner for once. The league is fining Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross $1.5 million, banning him from team headquarters and events for two and a half months and docking the Dolphins two draft picks for violating league tampering rules while trying to recruit quarterback Tom Brady and coach Sean Payton. This vindicates one of the many claims former Dolphins head coach Brian Flores made in his landmark lawsuit against the league a few months ago. But Ravi, I'm I'm pretty sure this isn't what you wanted to see Ross punished for, is it? Well, (laughs) I'm, you know, as a Buffalo Bills fan, I'm excited about this. (laughs) I would say there is also news that the NFL has decided to appeal the Deshaun Watson case, which Mm -hmm. just came down. And so I think, you know, that maybe the NFL is moving towards a little bit more coherence in the way it administers justice. And obviously the Flores stuff is playing out. That's going to arbitration, I think, the last time we checked. And so that'll be just, I think the, the NFL is rapidly changing the way it administers consequences and that could be a good thing yeah absolutely another update we have here is uh robbie talk to us a little bit about what happened in kansas in which they basically uh protected abortion through the citizens vote yes so voters in kansas overwhelmingly rejected a referendum that would have removed the right to abortion from their state constitution and this was obviously a major victory for abortion rights advocates uh the vote wasn't even close so this was 59 to 41 percent in kansas at a time where there wasn't a whole lot of stuff on the ballot for democrats to come out to vote for i think if you combine that with the fact that polls are starting to narrow uh in the generic congressional vote it's nearly tied at this point Uh, according to the real clear politics average this would be the first time that the two lines touch since november 2021 this seems like it's going to be a closer race uh for congress at least as of today than a lot of people thought I would have thought a couple of weeks or months ago. Yeah, we'll definitely have to keep an eye out on that. And Ricky, you also have an update on 
Uh, something going on with crypto and the Senate may be finally coming to some uh, regulatory actions regarding crypto. Um, yep. So there's new bipartisan legislation that came out of the Senate that would allow the CFTC to oversee um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, some other uh, major cryptocurrencies, and basically would expand their purview so that they could actually regulate a commodity. And so they would be able to impose standards for transparency, for advertising, for consumer protection, and it would impose fees on the platforms to access that oversight and be basically like certified by it. Um, and one of the Democratic senators who um, who proposed this legislation said that they were playing fast and loose with people's money. So that's that's the take from the Senate right now. The crypto bros are not going to like that. Not one bit. Well, we want to thank you all for listening and watching today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you listen to the podcast, make sure to rate, review and subscribe. We will see you all next time. <laughs>